If you haven't turned in your, in your Bibles yet to Matthew 14, you can do so. Um, we'll get there some point um, this morning. But we have been considering over the, the course of this past year um, the series of focusing on the Christ. And again, at the bottom you can see that we began the year looking at the shadow of Christ, uh, how Jesus just showed up, just shows up in the Old Testament everywhere, um, that Christ or that God was putting out a, uh, a revelation that Jesus was going to be coming. Um, for thousands of years. And so it shouldn't have taken the people by surprise when he came, though it did. And then, a few months ago, we began began transitioning into the life of Christ. And as we began looking at the life of Christ, we considered his birth, his youth. We've moved into this aspect of his ministry. And in his ministry, we're looking at seven, seven different sections. His preparation, proclamation, power, parables, passion, pattern, and promise. And um, two weeks ago, we looked at the parables of his ministry. And last week, we began looking at the passion of his ministry. The passion of his ministry. And as we began looking at the passion of his ministry, we discussed uh, the fact that Christ had a passion for, for God. And, um, and that because of his passion for God, which began to be revealed at his youth, when, he's, when he was found by his mom and dad, by his mom and stepdad, um, in, the, in the temple when he was 12 years old, he said, didn't you, need, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? That continued on into his ministry. And as such... Um, it was consistent with the, um, the great commandment which he had proclaimed, and that is that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And therefore, we as well, application-wise, are to have a passion for God. And we saw in that message last week, the expression of our passion for God is revealed in our passion for his word, and secondly, in our passion for his work. Now, I'm not going to get into all that, okay, but just to discuss that. And then secondly, that the source of our passion for God was he himself. We love him because he first loved us. He had a passion for me, that, therefore I have a passion for him. And we're going to talk about that passion he has for us in just a moment. And then thirdly, the consequences of our passion for God. And in each one of these, we were looking from the book of what? Deuteronomy. Good. Who said that? Good job, Liz. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy. Okay. That's clearly exactly where we'd all go when we're looking, considering the love of God for us, right? But um, in, our, in our passion for him. But it is, all through the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are very consistent with each other. Okay, And so here we looked at Deuteronomy 28 and 29, and the blessings and the curses. And we noted that the fact that the blessings and the curses are all tied together with those who serve him um, in our passion for God. And God said, even in the curses, he says, it's because you didn't have joy in your heart. You're going through the motions. And so we saw from the book of uh, Revelation with Jesus' message to the church of Ephesus as well. He says, you're doing all this work, but you've lost your first love. And if you don't repent and return from once you've fallen, I'm going to come and remove the candlestick. In other words, I know how much you're serving me or working for me, but you're doing it with the wrong passion. Your passion is not right. And so we're called to have a passion for God. Now, we discussed at the beginning of last week's message, and I want to bring this up as we go into this week's um, continuance of the message, and that is just the definition of passion and the importance of passion. Passion is that emotion which is very strong and powerful within you. It's a strong and powerful emotion, and it's your passion, that which you're strongly emotional about, which will ultimately affect your priorities and your decision-making. So the things that you're going to do in life are the things that you're really passionate about. Okay? You're going to set your priorities according to those things which you're passionate about. And so if you are not passioned and passioned for God, i.e. his word and his work, okay, then you're not going to make time for that. I mean, you know, I don't, as a pastor, I mean, maybe my perspective is a little bit different than yours. And you can say, well, it's because, you're, you know, your, your salary is tied to this. Not necessarily. I'm, I'm, the last eight years, I can clearly preach without having to worry about anybody claiming that, right? Because I've got to go on the other side. Well, the reality is, I mean, it's very easy to miss Sunday to not go to church Okay, and I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here, right? And so you can all say, yeah, I made it on the right day. Uh, but if you weren't here, you would have never known I said it anyway. So don't worry about it. Um, but anyways, it's very easy to not go to church if you don't have a passion for God. Does that make sense? But if you have a passion for God, what's going to be one of your greatest priorities for Sunday morning? To be in God's house with his people. I'm gonna, I want to be fed by him. If you don't have a passion for God, it's very easy not to have a quiet time in the morning. You said, what's that? Well, that answers the question. So, if you have no time in God's word on a daily basis, it just shows me that you have no passion for him. Does that make sense? And, and I'm not trying to be cruel, and I'm not trying to be unkind, 
It's just a fact. Well, Jesus clearly had a passion for God. Okay? It was revealed in the entirety of his life. You say, well, that's easy because Jesus was God. He had a passion for himself. Let's not go there. Let's understand that Jesus was holy man, just like he was holy what? God. And so Jesus, as the man, had a passion for his father. He was always about the things of his father. But secondly, Jesus had a passion for, for people. And just as Jesus' primary passion reflected the greatest commandment, so his secondary passion reflects the second greatest command. Because Jesus, when he was approached by that lawyer, we talked about this last week, was asked the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. Right? This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he went on and said, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we didn't talk about that side last week. We only talked about the first and greatest commandment, and we saw that that was from where? Deuteronomy. That's why we spend all that time in the book of Deuteronomy. Because the context of the greatest command of what Jesus said should be our greatest passion, if you would, is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter four or chapter six, verses four through nine, called the Shema. Okay? But then we saw that it's actually all throughout the book of Deuteronomy that Moses continually tells us that we're supposed to have this passion, this love for God, and for and because of that to serve him. Okay? Well, Jesus said the second is what? Is like it. The second's just like it. And that is, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. You need to love your neighbor. And then notice what it says. On these two commandments, hang what? All the law in all the prophets. Now, just as Jesus mirrored then that first and greatest commandment in his, in his passion of his life, I believe that we're going to see that Jesus mirrored the second greatest commandment as his second greatest passion of his life. Okay? So, Jesus had a passion for people. First of all, let's look at the expression then of Christ's passion. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. I said we'd get to Matthew 14 in a little bit. Mark 1. Now, I'm gonna, what I want to do is read through these, maybe make some slight commentary, um, and then draw some principles at the end, and then envelop them all together, hopefully. Um, but you know how hard it's going to be for me to not to make commentary every time we do it. So, so there's no promises. Um, you can pr- start praying now, Rodney. Start praying now. <laughs> Mark 1, uh, beginning of verse 40, says, Now a leper came to him, that is Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am what? I'm willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. He was clean. Now, the only comment I want to make here, okay, I told you I can't do it, is is because it's it's important to each of these verses, okay, is the word compassion. That's right. Um, There is the the noun of splanknon, and then the verb form of it, which is splanknitsomai, okay? Um, That's just a common word in your household, isn't it? And, uh, um, but you, you, you really do know the splanknon, um, or at least a derivative of splanknon, because many people think that it's, it's, it's unnecessary. Your spleen, your spleen. The splanknon is your, your, your inner organs, okay? And so it talks about the tenderness, because, you know, when somebody gives you the kidney punch, or right, right in here, the little gut punch, it what? It hurts, okay? And if you ever have any gas pains, it can drive you down. Do you ever have a kidney stone? I mean, only once for me, only once. I know um, Greg's not here, but Greg had struggled with him for, for, for a long time. But I was taking a lot of, um, what do you call it, um, Sudafed. Um, and I guess Sudafed, um, if you take it too much, can affect your kidney, especially if you're not drinking a lot. And we all know I struggle with not having enough fluids during a day. Anyway, so I, I was really doing the Molotov cocktail to my body here. And one day we were just raking leaves at, at a house that I had a job at. And I mean, it put me down to my knees, like, like just like that. And I couldn't get up. And everybody looked at me and was like, what happened? I don't, man, I got this pain right here, you know. Well, that's your splanknon. Okay, that's the those inner, um, that's that inner that inner pain. That's okay. 
She's having an inner pain. That's exactly right. She's demonstrating what it feels like. And, um, and so we, we have that. And so this splanknitsomai then means the, the verb form, the action that goes along with it, is to have that inner feeling. Does that make sense? Okay. And so Jesus, um, Mark 1, that leper comes to him and says, if you're willing, you can what? You can make me clean. And what does Jesus, what, what happens with him? He what? He has that inner feeling. Do you get it? He has that compassion. He feels for him, and he says, I'm what? I'm willing. Go on to Luke 7. Luke 7. Verse 12. Now I'm going to start at verse 11 for the context. He says, Now it happened the day after, that is the day what he was doing that, he went to a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had splanknon, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up, began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all. They glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. Okay? Go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, beginning at verse 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with splanknitsamai, he was splanknon, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, now Matthew 14, where I said we're going to go. Okay, in beginning at verse 10, okay, I'm going to reread this section that we read here. Because I, I, it's important that you get this. Okay, so this is beginning at verse 10. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. Who's that? Herod, okay? Herod sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Why? Because he was in mourning. Why? It was his cousin. See, sometimes we forget who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Half cousin, step cousin, however you want to state that relationship that's there, okay? Um, but he's his cousin. He loved John. And you have a cousin that you're close to, okay, that you have ministries with, if you would. And you get word that your cousin's beheaded. How would you feel? So, what was the first thing that Jesus did when he heard that John was beheaded? He wanted to be, go be by himself, okay? So, when he heard it, he departed from there by boat to go to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, not that John was beheaded, but that when they heard that Jesus was leaving by a boat, they followed him on foot from the cities. You've got to understand the geography that the Sea of Galilee, you know, it's not a huge lake, okay? It's only like a mile across, mile and a half across at the widest part. It's not huge, okay? And so, he's at the northern tip of Capernaum, and he's just kind of doing a, a, a straight line across the, the, the tip of the, the, of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? He's in a boat. Now, he's not in a what? A motorboat. They don't have motors back then. Okay? His, his, the engine of his boat is what? A couple guys with rows, oars. That's exactly right. Okay? And so sometimes, actually, it's easier to walk around than it is to boat across. And so the people just knew that he, was, he wasn't heading out like southwest or southeast across the, the, um, the lake. In other words, he wasn't going a what? A long way away. He's just kind of skirting the, the coastline. So they knew what? He, he's, just, he's just heading down the, down the coastline a little bit, you know? And so what did they do? They just got on the path and they just walked along the lake. 
the lake. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but the lake, Lake Gennesaret, okay, is also what it's called. And so they walked along the lake, and they got to the spot that he was going to before he got there. <laughs> That's kind of a bummer, ain't it? You went to a deserted place, and it wasn't what? It wasn't deserted, okay? And so... Um, so Jesus gets there and says, But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And he said to them, Get lost. This is my time. I want to be by myself. No, that's Bob. Sorry. Um, rather, he looks at him and he has what? Compassion. He saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, that means it was all day. His disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place. The hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages. A great out. A great out. And buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. (laughs) And we always focus on this part about the great miracle and that kind of stuff. And I don't want to belittle the miracle, but that's not what I want to talk about today. So he performs the miracle. Five loaves, two fish, feeds multitudes of people, thousands of people, 5,000 besides women and children. But look at verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, and go before him to the other side, while he then sent the multitudes away. When he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain to what? Pray by himself. He went up by by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was what? Alone. Okay? What's the point? He had a passion for people. And his passion for people, based upon his passion for God, so outweighed the passion that he had for his own desires, his own needs. Do you get it? I mean, his cousin just died. The one that he was close to. And he just wanted to be alone. Has that ever happened to you? Not that your cousin died, but he just wanted to be alone. Every day. <laughs> and, well, in my house, actually, with seven kids, sometimes it is. And... <laughs> And you just want to be alone, and what happens? Somebody invades your space, your privacy, your own little world. And honestly, you don't need to tell me this one now, okay? (laughs) What do you really think? I'm not saying what do you really do. I'm saying what do you really think? What is your first reaction? Now, sadly to say, many times our first response is due to our first what? Thought. As you think you do many times, okay? And we don't check ourselves. And so many times we drive people away because of our what? Selfishness. Because of our self-centeredness. Okay? Let's go a little bit further into what we're talking about today. Because our passion or our priorities of passions is skewed to who? To me. That's right. It's not, I have a passion for God, I have a passion for others, and then I have a passion for me. How many of you have ever seen on, on YouTube, now I'm going to show some of these probably to the, the victors, they're, 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 they're good, okay, keep them in, in perspective here, but a lot of these, I'm second videos on YouTube. You've never seen them? They're awesome. There's hundreds of them up there. I'm second. So, teenagers, don't go see it. See it on Wednesday nights. Anyways, um, but seriously, um, I remember when I first saw these was um, a couple years ago, when Colt McCoy and Sam Bradford were playing against each other for the Big 12 championship. Now, some of you are saying, who are they? Shame on you. Anyways, no, <laughs> that's good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you don't know. Uh, but, but they, that's right. They're, they're college football icons from a couple years ago for the Big 12. You know who they were, right? I mean, you probably have a Sam Bradford shirt hung up in your wall. Anyways, uh, as a matter of fact, that's right. and you probably have a Colt McCoy that has a bunch of darts in it. Anyways, so, but Colt McCoy was the quarterback for Texas. Sam Bradford was the quarterback for University of Oklahoma. And University of Texas and University of Oklahoma are always at each other for the Big 12 championship. Yes? Okay? It's the way it, way it goes. But what was exciting, exciting, very exciting, about Sam Bradford, along with um, Cole McCoy, this is the same era as that guy from Florida. His name was? Tim Tebow. Okay? All three of them, top three quarterbacks in the country, were strong believers. They were strong believers. They were strong Christians. And before the, before the big game, Sam Bradford and Colt McCoy had one of these I'm second videos recorded together. 
God's first. I'm second. Now, do you think they wanted to win the, the Big 12 championship? Of course. But what did they understand was more important than the Big 12 championship? It's God. Now, what I'd love to see, though, is, it's exactly right, the videos should be, I'm third. You know, I mean, on the, on the, the NCAA basketball, who's, who's the voice, that, the, the guy who does all the, you know, has that voice, he's a, you know, we're number one, baby, we're number one, baby, you know. And um, anyways, it should be, we're what? I'm number three, baby. I'm number three. Because my passion, be, and Jesus showed this, should be for God, number one, and for others, number two. And Jesus lived that. He came around, he just wanted to be alone, and he saw the people. And no, I mean, again, you know, I, I say separate the man from the God thing, but you, know, you still have the God side. Jesus knew all their, their needs, right? He knew they were going to be there. He could have said what? Let's fake them out. Let's head back the other way. I would have. <laughs> That's what I would have done. That's right. Okay? Aren't you, I always say, aren't you glad I'm not God? Anyways, and so he knew it, and he went in the port anyway, quote-unquote, if you would, went in the shore. He saw them, and we're told immediately he got involved in their needs. He began to what? To heal them. And then he began to teach them. And then ultimately he what? He fed them. And then after he had met their needs, what did he do? He said, you can go away. Okay? I mean, but he didn't put them away. He met their needs first. And then what did he do? Then he went and took care of his need. His need wasn't gone. It didn't automatically vanish. I mean, you think God in the flesh, what did it bother him? It's just another one of his creation. I mean, how many other parts of the creation had, had lost their heads or lost their fingers or died or whatever? This was just another part of the creation. I mean, honestly, did it take him by surprise that John was going to be killed? Did it take him by surprise that John was beheaded? No. But the man's side of God, or of Jesus, sorry, the man's side of Jesus, had that great compassion. And I think that that's what shows me that as well that God what? God has compassion. God has great compassion. You know, sometimes people think that God is just very what? Stagnant, sterile, no, no emotions, no nothing. But we're told that we're made in the what? Image and likeness of God. And I think that, I think, I believe that God has emotion that we read about throughout the whole Old Testament. When we, we, we hear about his anger, and we hear about his sorrow, and we hear about his lament, and we hear about his repentance. Do you understand? That God was sorry, what? That he made man. Genesis 6. So God has these things. We're going to come back to this in a moment in our principles. But let's go to John 13, verse 1 real quick. This just shows one last aspect of this passion of Jesus um, very quickly here. And then we want to begin looking at applications as well. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he knew what? He was about to die. Okay? That he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he what? He loved them to the end. Now, you got six hours to live. You got 12 hours to live. Give yourself whatever. You got a week to live. Most people, what do they focus on? Themselves. That's exactly right. What do I want to get accomplished? What did I have never done before that I want, to, I want to experience before I die? Jesus didn't think about that. What do we read that Jesus thought of? His, his disciples. He thought about the Father. He's going to accomplish his work. And he thought about his disciples. He's going to love them to the end. Their needs were more important than his needs. So, some principles here. Reading these passages and... and and bringing them together. Some principles of, of, of Christ. First of all, Jesus perceived the needs of the people. Now that may sound like, okay, but the first step in really meeting somebody's needs or having 
a compassion or a passion for them is that you need to recognize that there's even what? A need. Let me go back further. You've got to recognize there's even people there. I'm a very tunnel vision individual. And it's very easy for me to miss everybody else around me. Even though, I mean, I may know that they're there, but it's just, it's not a part of my existence. When I leave my house, so many times I feel like my family goes in freeze frame. I'm not there. Why should they be doing anything? And then all of a sudden I come home, and all of a sudden the world starts animating again for them. And they just come into existence. You know, Bob's dad's home. And you guys, I mean, you know, you, you, you unfroze this morning so that you could come to church and be a part of my life. You know? <laughs> That's a bad worldview. It is. But you know what? Sometimes, I mean, I'm just being honest. And, and some of you live that way. You just haven't recognized it yet. And, um, but I, I know for Bob, okay, this is one of these prayer requests for Bob that, that I work, you know, work in prayer with God. You know, God, I mean, I know who I am. I know how I, I act, okay? And I know that that part's got to be what? It's got to be tempered. It's got to be put aside. There are people out there that, that you care about, <laughs> even if they're not a part of my life. That's an amazing thing. Chris, I think we, did you ever, did you come for the, the wedding a few years ago? So we've never met before. It is really awesome that God would bring you from Texas to enter into my life. I mean, anyways, now, that's, I'm, 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 it's a joke. I mean, I hope you understand. I'm really joking about that. But the fact is I've never met you before then, Chris, right? You know, and so now all of a sudden I have a decision to make. Do I care about Chris? Uh, you know, he's, he said he doesn't, not into football and stuff like that, so I hope he's not a real Cowboys fan. I mean, that really be a downer, you know. <laughs> I put up with you, Rodney. So, anyways. Um, and, and so, do I care about Chris? Does that make sense? Or do I care about Chris's interaction into my life? Do you understand the difference between the two of them? Okay. So, I, I've got to recognize the fact that people are here. And so, I'm not missing you guys. You know, you, you're all visiting as well. So, we've never met, have we? No. Yeah. Not in this life? No. Okay, anyways. Um, and so, so, the reality is, we've, we've, I've got... In my mind, I can be, I have got to be other focused. People, you know, look at me. Listen, being a pastor, I have got to put on a different hat. When, when this is all done and I'm spent because I'm an introvert, I want nothing more than to do what? Hide underneath that pulpit, be in my, my own little room, or go into the office, or just go be by myself. And so, you know, I'm not saying to make you feel bad, but honestly, I know I, I have got to be the person who puts out. Why? Because Christ did. That's my example. And I have to be, I have to have eyes that are open to seeing your needs, just as Jesus did. Do you understand? Jesus saw the need of the, of the leper. Jesus, when he was walking to Nain, Nain he didn't miss the, the funeral. But even more importantly, he didn't miss the widow that was a part of it. Do, do you understand? So first of all, he, he had to recognize. Second of all, he had to then elevate the needs of the people. That requires compassion. He had to decide that the leper's needs was more important than his needs. He, Going to the multitude, he had to decide that the multitude being ministered to was more important than him having time alone. Philippians chapter 2, we may get there later, says that I'm supposed to do all things without strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, I'm supposed to esteem the needs of others as being what? More important than myself. And let this mind be in you as well in Christ Jesus. In other words, it was the mind of Christ that's supposed to be exuded into us. Okay, or exuded from us to others, that we're supposed to be elevating the needs of other people. Thirdly, he supplied then the needs of the people. That required participation. He got involved. How many times have you seen somebody, you recognized it, you saw the person was there, you even did what? Saw the need. And then you even were what? Burdened. You knew something had to be done, but you said what? Somebody else will do it. I don't want to be involved. It's not my greatest passion of the moment. Do you get it? That's, that's what happens. If it was, if helping other people is your greatest passion other than serving God, then you'd do what? You'd stop. You'd be involved. Now, I understand there's got to be a balance in that, but... Most of us honestly don't struggle with being out of balance and helping people. Okay? Most of us struggle with what? Being out of balance and not helping other people and serving ourselves. And so it requires a willingness to humble yourself, 
and it requires a willingness to serve others. All right, now that moves in then to us, the application of Christ's passion. We see what Christ's passion is. We saw the principles of Christ's passion, and clearly you know I'm going to be bringing it then to us. Because just as the, the greatest commandment was for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our second greatest commandment then is to love our neighbor as ourself. Our passion for people is a command. Okay, That's the first thing we want to look at. Just as it was a command that Jesus gave, it is a command for us. And so we saw that earlier, that the that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second like it is to, to love our neighbor as, as ourselves. So first of all, it's a, it's a command, a command that we're supposed to do. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, you don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you, okay? But you can turn to Luke 10 as, I'm, as I read this. Go to Luke 10 because we want to continue this there. Um, we saw last week where this was going to head. When in Deuteronomy 10 it says, And now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes which I command you this day for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heaven belong to Yahweh your God, also the earth with all that is in it. Yahweh delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff no longer. And he continues on and then says, Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Because you love the Lord your God and you desire to serve him and you recognize his passion that was involved in your life, what will you eventually do then? You'll love the stranger. Just as you were a stranger in Egypt and God loved you, you will love the stranger yourself. Well, in Luke chapter 10... In Luke chapter 10, um, that's the, Luke's version of the, the greatest commandment, right? And in Luke 10, the question is asked, what? Who is my? Who's my neighbor? And so Jesus then gives the illustration of who is the neighbor. And so he begins to give the parable then of the Good Samaritan, the one that we, we know very well ourselves. And he begins stating, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, says, um, let me go down and says to where the verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he had saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came there where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, splank none. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on, his, pouring on oil and wine, and, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And, and he said, He who showed him mercy... And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, if you've been here enough, you, you know my take on this, but I'll share it again because I know some of you aren't here. Um, we miss it sometimes because we don't understand the Jewish culture. Okay, But I think this is important to understand when we talk about passion, the, the passion concept here. And that is, you've got a guy going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's, he's, he's left for dead. He's, he's, um, he's grabbed by the by the, the, the thieves, the, mug, the muggers. Um, they steal everything he has, and they leave him for dead. Okay? He's bloody. He's laying on the side of the road. Now, you need to understand that at some parts, that road to Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, was along the ridge along, in a wadi. A wadi is the washout where the water would come down from the mountains and, and, um, and down to the lowland. Okay? Uh, out west, they would be called gulches and stuff like that. Okay? So it was just big, deep ravines. Okay? And the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was on a, a ridge that went along it, up, up along it. So some places, it's, it's only this wide. Marsh and I had a, a day to walk on that one when we were over there years ago. In some places, it's wider, okay? And so the, the thieves would get up in some of those angles, some of those corners, where when you came around, they got you, okay? And they, they knock you over the head, they get you everything you have, and, and stuff. That's why they would travel in caravans, to protect themselves, okay? Well, this guy was traveling by himself. A merchant was traveling by himself, and he was left for dead. Okay? Now, he's laying there. Okay? I don't know how wide. Jesus doesn't tell us which segment of the wadi it's at. Okay? So we don't know how wide it is, but he's left for dead. And coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem, the first person who comes through is a priest. What <coughs> occupation does the priest have? He's a priest. Good. Okay. What does that mean? 
No, he doesn't serve people. He serves God at the temple. Offers up sacrifices for people, but he's doing it on behalf of God. Okay? Now, he comes walking up, and what does he see? The ones who have heard me say this before, what does he see? He sees potentially a dead person. Ah, he sees the potential for uncleanness. If he touches a dead body, he instantly becomes unclean according to the law, which means that he cannot do what? Can't serve God. His highest passion is what? To serve God. He sees a guy who has need. I'm giving him good motives here, okay? We always like to give these guys bad motives, okay? Jesus never gives them bad motives. He just says what they do. Do you get it? Okay? So he sees the guy that's going to make him unclean. He can't touch him. If he touches him, he can't what? Serve God. So he tiptoes through the tulips around him. Okay? Says, I don't want to touch this guy. The next guy that comes up is a Levite. Notice Jesus doesn't, this is important for this parable, he doesn't pick an ordinary Jew. Okay? He didn't just say, and, and a guy from the, the tribe of Zebulun comes along, the next guy pulls a Levite. Well, what tribe is the priest from? Levites. Okay? And so now we have a Levite. Well, same thing. No, it's a little bit different. The priests were the, the, the top guys. They were like the head pastors, if you would, okay? And then you had the Levites who were like the what? The deacons, okay? They're the assistant pastors, the deacons, whatever, okay? They're the guys that are coming along, okay? And they assist in temple worship. But he's going from, Jerusalem, from Jericho to Jerusalem to do what? To honor God, to serve God. And so he then sees what? The same thing the priests saw. He saw the potential for becoming unclean. And if he touches the dead body, becomes unclean, he can't what? Serve God. I'm going with the greatest passion that there is to serve God. You know, so I can't touch this guy. Well, the Samaritan comes by, and what does he see? Somebody needs help. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's not even a full-fledged Jew. Okay? He's not under the law. Good job, Andrew. He's not under the law. And so he's not bound by the law. He's not worried about uncleanness. He just sees somebody who has a need. And he gets involved in the need. Do you see the principles? The first thing he had to do was what? He had to see the guy. And not just see the guy, he had to see the guy, that the guy had what? He had needs. Now, you say, well, that's kind of hard to miss. Okay, sometimes it's kind of hard to miss, and we still miss it. Purposely or unpurposely, it doesn't matter, but we, we miss it. He saw the need, okay? He saw the need, and then secondly, he did what? He had compassion. He responded. He had compassion, though. He had, to, he had to have that desire to help. Does that make sense? He didn't, you know, so many times, riding down the road, somebody's broken down the side of the road, and it doesn't phase you at all. You see the person, you see the need, and you say, guess you should have had a spare tire with you. You know? Guess you should have put oil in it. Man, I can't believe the guy's grinding, you know, without making sure that the, the antifreeze level's right. Whatever. I know you've never done that. And, um, and you ride on past. Whatever. You may not make any comments at all, or at least externally. <laughs> and, and you just ride on past because you wanted to get to Atlanta and not be interrupted. But the last step was what? You saw the need. You had compassion for the need, and then you got involved in the need. That's what the Samaritan did. And Jesus said to him, so which one's the good neighbor? Which one was the, was the neighbor who loved him? And he says, it's the last guy. Now, understand, the lawyer who asked the question was what? A Jew. A Jew. Do you, what do you think, how do you think he liked it, giving the answer that the Samaritan was the better guy than the priest? But that's a fact. I don't care whether, yeah, I don't care if you're a Democrat and you've got to say that the Republican's right, or whether you're a Republican, you've got to say the Democrat's right. I mean, you know, it just, for them back then, it was, that was awful, okay? It just, it was a fact. And so, for them to say that the Samaritan was, was the good guy, you know? And so, it was a command. Well, think about this now. What did Jesus' death, burial, resurrection do for you? Freed you from the law. And gave you a higher law, a higher command. Turn with me to John 13. John 13. Now understand that Jesus says that this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second like it. And on all these, these two, all the laws um, and prophets are hung. 
But in John 13, after we had read verse 1, remember coming to the end, he loved his own to the, to the end? In verse 34 and 35, John 13, we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Does Jesus say, this is my hunger for you? This is my passion for you. This is my desire for you as my disciples. He didn't say that. A new what? Commandment. Commandment. That sure sounds like what? A law. <laughs> it's a commandment. It's not a request. God doesn't want you to love your neighbors or to love your brethren. He demands it. Do you get the difference? It's not his pleasure is his command. So I'm not under the law. You're not under the law. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. Does anybody, can, anybody tell me what the new covenant is? Jeremiah 31? Right. No longer are you under the law, but now the law will be written in your hearts and in your mind. And no one will say to the, to the neighbor, know, know the Lord, know Yahweh, because why? Because they'll know him. Okay? Because the law now will be written in your heart and in your mind. See, the law is not destroyed. The law is fulfilled. And Jesus said, the whole law and the prophets are fulfilled, if, if you would, summed up in these two commands. Love God with everything you are. And then what? Love others. Love God, love others. If you love God and you're really loving others, guess what? You don't have to worry about the letter of the law. Because just by nature you're going to be desiring to fulfill the law. Do you get it? And so Jesus then takes that second one and highlights it and says, a new command I'm giving to you, that you love one another. And by this very thing, what? The whole world's going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In the book of Acts, the early time of the church, what did they do for one another? Everything. Everything. They sold land. They sold houses. They, 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 so they can meet the needs of one another. And what happened in Jerusalem, Daniel? Fear came upon the people. The word of God spread and the church grew. Because the people around about saw that it was what? It was for real. It's the real deal. It wasn't a cult. It's the real deal. This changed their lives. People's lives were changing. And they were putting no... No um, uh, investment, if you would, in the world. It was all in the kingdom of heaven. And the world was changing because of it. It's not only a, a command then, it's a commentary. It's a commentary on my relationship with God. Jesus said, by this, all the world will know. All the world will know. You look out and you ask yourself, how do you know if this person's really what? Really saved. Well, you know, God's got markers in the Word of God to declare whether we're really saved. As we saw last week, one of the things is that we're going to have a passion for God in His Word and His work. If you're His child, you will have a passion for the Word of God. 1 Peter 2 says, as a newborn babe, you'll desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be that you've tasted of the graciousness of God. If you've tasted of the grace of God, the goodness of God, then you're going to want to know more about him. It's just a fact. I remember a little girl years ago who got saved. She was in a very unchurched, a very unchurched home. A very unchurched home. Did I say that enough? And you know what started happening in her life? I didn't tell her she had to do this. She didn't even pray to ask Jesus as her Savior in my presence. She did it later. But there was proof to me, before I knew that she did it, that she had done it. Do you know what she started doing? Not only did she start reading the Bible for herself daily, she started leading her family in devotions. She started reading the Bible to her sisters and cousin. That's pretty cool and started witnessing to her mom and aunt. And I wound up having a Bible study with her mom and aunt because of it, and seeing them get saved 
It's really cool stuff. And then she's asking me about being baptized. She wants to be identified with Jesus. She didn't get it from me. She didn't go to church. We don't really talk about baptism a whole lot in Awana, you know? But she was reading the word, and because she was reading the word, she knew what Jesus wanted from her. Do you get it? The second thing we, we see then here is this passion for people as a commentary as well. We're going to have a desire, 1 John 3, turn there, we're going to have a desire to help people. Okay? We've been memorizing 1 John as a church. Okay? And so I love it how many of these things are going together. In, um, in 1 John 3, we've been memorizing this little section this month. Okay? And let's start at verse 16 to 18. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Back up in verse 17 where it says, And he who sees the brother in need and shuts up his heart, that's really not heart, that's not the cardia, Greek heart. Guess what word that is? It's the bowels. It's the splanchnon. That's the compassion, the seeds of the seeds of compassion. You see the need, but you do what? You sear you sear the passion of your soul, so that you don't have to get involved. You see it, and you say, "I don't want to be involved." What does it say? How does the love of God abide in him? Jump down to verse or chapter four, verse nine. In this the love of God was manifested toward God, toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be appreciation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to what? Love one another. Okay, well, that being in mind, drop down to verse 19. It says, we love him because he first loved us, which is consistent. He says, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a what? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You need to understand that we like to make a lot of gray areas. God doesn't have those. To not love somebody is to what? Hate them. And so Jesus said, you know, you've got to hate your mother and father in comparison to your love for me. Not, not that he's saying you need to hate mom and dad, you need to hate your kids, you need to hate, you know, da 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 da. But what he's saying is that you need to love me so much that it almost looks like you must hate your kids. Andrew, you like to, to answer a lot, so I'll, I'll just call on you. If, if the push came to shove and someone met, said, you've got to pick between Jesus and Andrew, who would I pick? Jesus. Pick Jesus. Exactly right. What do I hopefully know about you? Would. That you'd pick the same thing, right? And if, and if they say, if I, don't, if I don't deny Jesus, they're going to kill you, what do I know about Andrew? If Andrew dies, where's Andrew going to go? Dead. You're going to go to heaven. And when I die, where am I going to go? Dead. And so what do I know is going to happen later? We get to what? We get to see each other again. We get to meet again. They're not doing anything to me. Actually, it's probably better for him to be in he- living with Jesus in heaven than to be living with me here. I mean, you know, I don't... You guys can think about that for all you're worth. But, so I wouldn't really be doing anything evil to him. But that's what the passion is supposed to look like. Well, it's the same thing then in my passion for others. If you say you love God, but you don't love people who are made in the image and likeness of God and God's commanded you to love, how can you say that you really love him? You don't love him. So your love... Your compassion for people, your passion for people is a commentary, and it's going to be seen in your desire to help them. Secondly, it's going to be seen in a desire to, to pray for them as well. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, you can turn there with me, um, but Paul says, God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affliction, affection or the, the passion of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent. And he goes on from there. He says, but listen, he says, I, God's my witness how much I long for you all with the passion, the compassion, the tender mercies of Jesus Christ. And because of that, it leads me to do what? It leads me to pray for you. 
How often do you pray for one another? How often do you, do you lift up the needs of one another before the Father's throne? Or when you pray, are your prayers more self-directed? Do you pray more for others or pray more for you? Thirdly, you'll have a desire to unite. Let me, for the sake of time, let me just read to you Colossians 3 here, verses 12 to 14. It says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, blank on, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond, that's the binding strap, the ligament, that which unites, of perfection. If you have the splank non, if you have the compassion or passion for other people, then you're going to desire for there to be unity. You're going to desire that you would be able to unite in the, in the bond of Jesus Christ. Why do you think, James says, there are wars and rumors of wars among you, okay? Why do you think there are so many church splits? Because people haven't got the passion for God, number one, and the passion for others, number two. They have what? A passion for self. And because what I want is more important than what anybody else wants, and I'm not willing to forbear with you, and I'm not willing to forgive you, I'm going to harbor it, and I'm going to hold it, and I'm going to carry it on. The sad thing is that they're really believers, guess what? You're going to live with them for all eternity. And God's already forgiven them. And so we're going to have a desire to, to, not, to unite. Our passion for people is a command. Secondly, it's a commentary. And finally, here quickly, it's a criterion. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. The, the word criterion, our English word, comes from the Greek word criterion. And it's up there on the, on the screen for you as well. Um, and if you know Greek, you can see it's actually the word criterion. That's ex- it's literally what it is. You can almost see it written there. Criterion. And it means a role of judging or to judge. And so our passion for people will be a criterion, which means what? It's going to be a rule. It's going to be one of those things that God judges us by. Matthew 25, beginning of verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd I'm sorry, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did you see, we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he also will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also answered, said to him, Lord, when did we see you, hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he answered them, saying, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal fire, eternal life, sorry, into eternal life. Turn, that'd be bad. That would really, that's, that's a bad mess up there. Eternal life. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5 before I make my final comments here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a, such an important passage because Paul was the, the author of grace. Yes? I'm going to start at verse 1 just for context. Says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. 
For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. That's cool, isn't it? I mean, that's, that, that's, that's me. I'm, I'm yearning for that. But he doesn't stop there. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us a spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yet, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, based upon all of that, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear, and he's talking to believers, not unbelievers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of God, the terror of Yahweh, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to you. What does he say? Because I know that I'm going to stand before the judgment seat, because I know that this mortal will be put off and immortality will be put on, because I know this corruptible will be put off and this incorruption is going to put on, because I know I'm going to come out of this tent and I'm going to go to be with God, I know I'm going to stand before his throne as well. I'm not just looking to say, well, as I get there, as long as I get there, as long as I got a spot, as long as the reservation's made, I don't care how big the room is, I don't care if it's got air conditioning, as long as I get there, because it's sure it's got to be cooler than it is in the other place. I've heard people talk like that. Maybe not those exact words. As long as I get there. And they miss it. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, just as he talked about the sheep and the goats. And just as he's going to separate the nations, so you're going to be going to count. And what's the criterion? What did you do with the love that I gave to you? We love him because he first loved us. Why do I love other people? Why do I love my neighbor as myself? Because of my love for God. Do you get it? It all flows. If I know how much he loved me and how much then he loves others, then I should do what? Love them too. And if the mind of Christ that's in, is in me, then I should be demonstrating and portraying that love, that mind of Christ to others and that love that he has for others. And one day, I'm going to give an account, and so are you. For what you've done with all the money and all the things that God has given you to use for the glory of his kingdom. Did you use them for you, or did you use them to serve him? Are you building yourself a bigger kingdom, or are you working on his? He said, by this, all are going to know that you're my disciples. Do they know? Do they look at your life and say, wow, there's something different. This guy has no claim on the world. I mean, it's, he's like a sieve. It comes in, it goes out to others. He's not looking for his bigger claim in life. Everything he's doing is about Jesus. Or she. Sorry, ladies, I didn't mean to leave you out of that one. It will be your commentary before you even have to open up your mouth about Jesus. People are going to want to know what made you so different. And you know what gets to happen then? You get to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that's within you. Kind of sounds like a Bible passage, doesn't it? Peter should have wrote it. The passion of Christ's ministry was God first and people second. What are your two greatest passions? Now, I understand when I say you, I'm pointing the fingers back at me. I, this, listen, I, these are messages I don't want to preach. Okay? Because be not many masters, such have the greater condemnation. So I, I understand. I'm, I'm putting it out, and I'm, and I'm, I'm putting it out hard. Okay? <laughs> and I'm going to give an account. I know I'm going to stand before that Bema Seat of Christ too. And I'm going to give him a call. Oh, yeah, you preach it, Bob. You know it. You can put it out. You know the Greek. You know the Hebrew. How do you live it? Are you truly loving God and loving your neighbor? Are you truly doing it? Or is there a need to change the way you think, a need to repent? If there is, my prayer for you is that don't walk away from it. Listen, you know, as I can tell the kids sometimes, it's okay to fail. It just proves what? You're a human. 
But what do you want to do when you realize you, you blew it? You want, to, you want to confess. You want to what? Change. Change the way you think. I mean, if, I mean it may be just something as simple as, you know, um, where's Ben? Ben working on an engine. We threw a rod yesterday. I'm proud of him for working on the engine and, and the, 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 the tiller. We used it for months beyond it. I thought it was dead, and I thought we'd just throw it away and sell it for scrap. But it threw, finally threw a rod yesterday. You know, and he's all bumming on it. You know, it's like, it's okay. You know, now's the time to do what? Just figure out, well, what could I do different? You know, maybe nothing, but maybe there is. But if I do the same thing I did last time, it's going to do what? I think I'm the same result. That's kind of what? That's the definition of insanity. Anyways, and, and so why will I do that with God? That's the definition of foolishness. Do you understand? If I, if I know there's a God, and I act like there is none, and I won't give an account to him, I'm the biggest fool there is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. You are an awesome God. And you love us beyond what we could ever imagine. And you said that even while we were yet sinners, and while we were at, at enmity, we were enemies of yours, you loved us, and you sent Christ to die for us. God, I know that before you ever laid the foundations of the earth and before you ever made Adam, you knew that Adam was going to sin. And you loved him anyway and made him anyway. And I'm glad, God, that you, you are the perfect representation of love and, and not anything like me. But, Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I pray that you help these others to grow in your grace and your knowledge to grow in our passion for you in our passion for others. Lord, you've said that if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put off those old passions, the passions of our flesh, and to put on the new passions of Christ, that we would thoroughly be enraptured in you in the desire to serve you by serving others for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.